0: Today in Glasgow, the world's major leaders are at a conference called COP26. Its purpose is to set ambitious goals that respond to the threat of climate change. Somewhat fatalistically, the conference is described as our world's last best hope to respond to this threat to our planet. I'm following the news from Glasgow from Sydney. Australia isn't playing well. Our Prime Minister and his government could barely scramble a half form 2050 target to reduce carbon emissions. It's shameful. But state actors, leaders of government, politicians aren't the only source of hope. Thank God. Coalitions of communities from across the world are also gathering in Glasgow. They are standing together, symbolising movements big and small from across the world who are determined to act for change. Organised under the banner of the People's Summit for Climate Justice, these are the voices pushing and pressing governments to do more. That summit is coordinated by the COP26 Coalition. When we are faced with something horrible, overwhelming or scary, we come together Coalitions between groups become our source of power. Coming together is even more important when the threat is broad, where the attack hurts different people in different ways, when, say, Indigenous communities, workers, migrant communities, the Global South need solutions, but their needs are different. There is nothing simple about coming together. Seeking climate justice requires complex coalitions, strong relationships, wise strategy. The idea that we can all just easily gather under one umbrella probably won't cut it. It raises the question, then what does work? What does it take to make a coalition powerful? Today's episode is a story we wrote back in 2017, but it speaks directly to the strategies changemakers need today. It's about two very different coalitions, In two unusual stories of two unusual alliances, there are many lessons for anyone interested in understanding the kind of coalition building that we need to respond powerfully to climate change. So, let's go. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast about people trying to change the world. Changemakers is supported by our launch partner, Mobilisation Lab. I'm Amanda Tattersall. First up, I'm in the United Kingdom, where they recently had a poll to leave the European Union that nobody expected would
1: win. I mean, even the people that voted to get out didn't believe we were going to get out. Nobody believed we were going to get out. Let's go.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, It's a dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent, united kingdom.
0: That's Nigel Farage, sounding like he's doing a hero speech scene from a B-grade action movie. His nation has just voted to tear up the way it has been making laws for the past 40 years. So he's uh, trying to sound historic.
2: Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day.
0: Thanks, Nigel. You might think you'd need a pretty broad coalition to convince a nation to take such a huge step. The truth is a little more surprising. Right from the start, campaigners who wanted Britain to leave the European Union had a couple of problems. First, Europe was actually relatively popular. The side that wanted to remain inside Europe had an 18-point lead at the start. And that's because it had tangible benefits, especially for businesses. When you take it into your own business, do you think that UK's relationship with Europe has affected your business? Well, it has very positively. This is Gareth Davies. He's a small business owner based in southern Wales.
1: A business that I'm doing an awful lot of work for. An old hotel has been turned into units. I'm doing all the painting. It's going to keep me busy for months. They had a Polish girl who has a degree in interior decorating. She wants to move to the area. She's allowed to be here. It's an opportunity to have somebody working within our business who I think could be fantastic, that I wouldn't have had the opportunity for if we weren't in Europe.
0: The story of how Britain got to the point where a small business owner in South Wales could easily tap the talents of a Polish interior decorator all starts 40 years ago. In
3: Strasbourg, it was French protocol which struck the note for Mr Heath's welcome with an ornate flourish a warm prelude to the symbolic signatures which have now paved the way for Britain to enter Europe.
0: When Britain joined the European Union in 1973, they were, let's say, politely late to the party. It had already been going for 20 years. Part of the reason for this is that just a few decades earlier, Britain had been the largest empire in the history of the world, ruling over one quarter of the world's population. Britain had become accustomed to telling other countries what to do. Now they were joining a community that basically was going to tell them what to do. But most people accepted it. So when Britain initially joined the common market, what did you think?
1: Couldn't have cared less. When was that,
0: 70-something?
1: 73. So I was a teenager who was probably more interested in sex, drugs and rock and roll.
0: As the decades went on, the European Union became part of the furniture in Britain. Labor standards were established across the continent... Environmental laws were standardised. Polish decorators moved to South Wales and found gainful employment. There was, however, one fly in the ointment.
4: You had a virulent, Eurosceptic, right-wing media who were strongly opposed to our membership of the EU.
0: That's Will Straw, Executive Director of the Remain campaign in the Brexit referendum, the side that lost, despite starting out with an 18-point lead.
4: And the right-wing press was supported by large sections of the Conservative Party who had a drumbeat of anti-European sentiment over decades.
0: Why was the media so Eurosceptic? Like, on what basis were they distrustful?
4: I think the main reason comes down to ideology. So the European Union, at its best, had harmonised standards for workers, for the environment, for corporate governance...
0: Basically, it was a way to prevent one country from driving down, say, their wages, in order to be more competitive than everyone else. It avoided what economists call a race to the bottom.
4: Now, to me as a progressive, that is a fundamentally good thing. The right opposed that. And the European Union was one of the things that was bringing in that kind of protection. They painted it as being bureaucratic, elitist, out of touch, expensive.
0: The campaigners who wanted to convince Gareth Davies that Britain should leave the European Union had a few problems.
1: I'm not interested in politics. Politics has never really interested me.
0: The people in the middle who the Leave campaign needed to convince weren't necessarily that engaged. On the other hand, there were a lot of interests with skin in the game in favour of Europe.
3: I could see how all the business groups and the main companies speaking in the media We're on the pro-European side of things.
0: Matthew Elliott led the campaign to leave the European Union. Essentially, he was Will Straw's Voldemort. His job was to convince Gareth that leaving Europe wouldn't affect his business. Bit of an uphill battle. It was obvious
3: that the government would basically wheel out all these big, major business leaders to basically say how it would be terrible for the economy.
0: So they needed to recruit some respectable business leaders to their side. Especially since the other major group arguing for leave had a tiny bit of an image problem.
2: I was asked a question, if a group of Romanian men moved in next to you, would you be concerned? And if you lived in London, I think you would be.
0: Nigel Farage and his UK independence party. You might call him racist, but apparently that's just a media obsession.
2: This constant attempt uh, to try to paint UKIP out to be a racist party is wholly unjustified, grossly unfair is leading people out there who agree with UKIP to almost feel shy about talking about
3: it. I could see how UKIP and their leader, Nigel Farage, only really had a limit in terms of their popularity of about a third of voters.
0: To win, Matthew needed more than half the voters. So the campaign decided it didn't want to be associated with its single biggest ally. That's a pretty huge call.
3: The trouble was that some of those messengers we wanted to get on board to attract those swing voters, such as Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, those people didn't want to be part of a UKIP-based campaign. There were lots of negatives about UKIP and Nigel Farage.
0: Meanwhile, over at the Remain campaign, it was the exact opposite.
4: It was genuinely cross-party. It was an open and inclusive campaign that brought into it people from all party backgrounds and none, That brought in people from civil society, from businesses, large and small, from the trade unions, from faith movements. It was the largest cross-party campaign this country has ever seen.
0: Remember, this is the side that lost.
4: We had some extraordinary match-ups of uh, the two heads of research from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party coming together in our campaign.
0: So what on earth went wrong for the Remain campaign? And, perhaps more interestingly, what the hell went right for Leave? It's not as if the Remain campaign couldn't mobilise its people.
4: In December, we started holding community meetings. The first weekend, we had four community meetings around the country. By June 27, we had the referendum. We had, on average, a thousand events taking place every weekend around the country. Wow. And I think we had 40,000 volunteers sign up.
0: And it wasn't the supporters themselves.
4: The people who put themselves forward came with a brilliant attitude. They were absolutely willing to put aside. Those party differences.
0: In fact, the campaign even found a way to make a virtue of the strange bedfellows it had brought together.
4: We always got new members of staff to introduce themselves, talk a bit about their background, to make a strength of the fact that we had people going right from the Green Party and the hard left of the Labour Party all the way over to some very, very Eurosceptic Conservative Party uh, members who believed it was in Britain's economic interest to remain in the EU.
0: Compare that to the Leave campaign, who all seemed to hate each other.
3: The relationship between Vote Leave and um, Leave.eu and UK and Grassroots Out, was always very difficult. A lot of people within those campaigns thought there should be one campaign.
0: But instead of trying to embrace all those difficult differences like Will Straw did, Matthew Elliott went in the exact opposite direction, eschewing any sort of formal coalition.
3: Because we're a separate campaign, the other... Leave campaign, never liked us. so constant arguments, constant disagreements.
0: And those disagreements were about pretty fundamental things, like what the message should be. The
3: message coming out of UKIP was, let's leave the EU so we can pull up the drawbridge and basically have no more migration to the UK.
0: Remember, Matthew Elliott believed that message would work on about one-third of voters, but alienate the rest.
3: We did a lot of market research on what people's attitudes were, towards migration. The point that we made at Vote Lee was actually much more in tune with what voters were thinking, which was basically Britain needs a certain amount of migration. We want to have the best software engineers from Silicon Valley and the best engineers from India and China. And on top of that, we need a certain amount of unskilled migration as well. To be frank, many British people don't want to do some jobs that they... Would consider to be menial and beneath them. Um, people recognise that, even the voters in places in the northeast where we got very high levels of votes, they understand that. But what they want is basically to, to coin that phrase, take back control of migration to the UK.
0: Let's take back control. Vote Leave on the twenty-third of June. So by not entering into a big, broad coalition with Nigel Farage and UKIP the Leave campaign was able to turn the message about migration into a far more respectable message about control. By having such a tight say over the message, it was much easier to navigate the dual task of washing migration of its racist associations while retaining a focused emotional punch.
1: Thinking about it now, they drove this very simplistic emotional campaign around immigration. Maybe they just got the fever of the people, they got it right. It's like an advertising campaign, isn't it?
0: So with that in mind, what did Gareth, a man who employed a Polish interior decorator, think about immigration?
1: We just can't keep taking people in. You know, we've got to get this under control.
0: There it is, control. It's over 12 months later and the campaign slogan is still fresh in Gareth's mind. Meanwhile, those further to the right could continue with more extreme rhetoric, a message that would bring some voters to the polls, even while the official campaign disavowed any association.
3: There was actually one key moment as well in the campaign when a lot of people started emailing me to say, you're absolutely right to do it as you did.
0: A week out from the referendum, UKIP launched a new billboard advertisement. It was a new low, even for Nigel Farage
3: a picture of refugees from Syria walking across some of the East European countries.
0: Across the top of the billboard in large red letters.
3: It said breaking point. It's a very controversial poster saying that Britain was at breaking point and migrants are marching across Europe to take our jobs and everything like that.
0: Then, that same afternoon, terrible news breaks.
5: Just before one o'clock today, Joe Cox, MP for Butley and Spenborough, was attacked in Market Street, Bristol. I am now very sad to have to report that she has died as a result
0: of her injuries. The attacker was a far-right Brexit supporter who later gave his name in court as Death to Traitors, Freedom to Britain.
3: So the juxtaposition of Nigel Farage's Breaking Point poster with the Labour Member of Parliament, Joe Cox's very sad death, done by somebody shouting, Britain first. Couldn't have come at a worse time for the campaign.
0: People now understood the wisdom of not being in a coalition with Nigel Farage.
3: They understood at that point what a liability he was and understood how badly the campaign could have been thrown off course had we stuck with him or been part of his campaign.
0: It was a horrific crime. For Matthew it showed the wisdom in the distance that he'd created. Nevertheless, it bears noting that Matthew Elliott's Leave campaign was still happy to take Nigel Farage's votes. Over at the Remain campaign, remember the big, broad, happy family, the issue of immigration was causing no end of headaches.
4: My view, the view of people who were on the Labor side of the argument generally, felt very strongly that we could not ignore this issue. We had to take it on. We had to unravel the misinformation that they were giving about immigration.
0: The Remain campaign was hopelessly split. Should they address the issue of immigration head-on or ignore it and instead talk about the economic benefits of Europe?
4: The Conservatives on the campaign wanted to move away from immigration and use every opportunity that immigration came up to pivot back onto the economy. And we felt that in the face of the Leave campaign relentlessly going after immigration, that this wouldn't work.
0: And do you think that the campaign's inability to really make the call around campaigning on immigration was partly a function of this very broad political coalition that sat at the top?
4: I think that's right. If you look at the Leave campaign, they had a very small number of decision makers at the top of their campaign, and they ran it by diktat. We didn't have the same opportunity.
0: Every message they put out had to have the support of an absurdly broad group, from the Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron to active trade unionists and green groups. Far from being a virtue, the breadth of this coalition was becoming a genuine problem.
4: There wasn't one clear message that the Remain campaign was putting out. It was a mishmash of different arguments, whereas the other campaign had this very seductive idea of take-back control, which they used again and again.
0: And what did the voters think? Well, let's check in with Gareth. What did you think of the Remain campaign?
1: To be perfectly honest, now 12 months on, I, the only thing I can say is that it obviously wasn't very convincing because it was the exit campaign that actually influenced me. Claire and I had a brief conversation. What are you going to do? I'm going to vote Leave. She said, or I said, yeah, well, I'm going to vote Leave as well. And that was it. It became an emotional issue. It was an emotional vote for us. A lot of people voted on a gap feeling. We voted on a gap feeling.
0: Will Straw's campaign fell into a classic trap. When you are trying to win a majority of people to your side, it seems common sense to want to build your coalition as broadly as possible to match the diversity of the people that you're wanting to influence with the diversity of your coalition. But with coalitions, less can often be more. If you have limited time on your hands, the broader you go when selecting coalition partners, the weaker the trust between those partners. Without strong common ground between the different players, the Remain campaign found itself in a messaging race to the bottom to find something, anything, that they could all agree on. Instead of pleasing everyone, its slogans became motherhood statements that didn't offend any of the coalition partners and, in the process, also pleased no one. The result? A tactical deadlock that meant that they couldn't respond effectively to their opponent. It was like the coalition that brought millions onto the streets to protest against the war in Iraq. Within months of that protest, the Walk Against the War coalition that I'd been a part of had disbanded in acrimony. The only common ground between the Marxists, the unions, the sports clubs and the Christians had been a single tactic. And once that had failed, the only thing left to do was to blame each other for the failure. By contrast, the Leave campaign took the opposite route. They had a narrow coalition that led them to develop a clear message about control that spoke to a majority. On the surface, their coalition looked much smaller. With fewer people to please, they had a higher level of trust, which meant that they could agree on a clear, focused message that didn't have to please everyone within the coalition. Instead, they could focus on getting enough swing voters across the line in order to win. Do you have any regrets about voting leave?
1: I think so, yeah. The issue was bigger than we realised, than everybody realised. The issue was much, much bigger. The Get Out campaign did a better job were louder up, brighter, whatever they did. And I can't even remember what they did now, but it, it must have been, it must have been stronger because the message got
0: through. We'll be back in a moment. This podcast is supported by the Fred Hollows Foundation. Four out of five people who are blind don't need to be. The Fred Hollows Foundation knows how to fix the problem and they can restore sight for as little as $25 in some countries. Over the past two decades, Fred Hollows has restored the sight of more than 2 million people.
5: There was one time when I operated on one man. He was blind for so many years and after the operation I followed him back to his home but he wouldn't go into his house immediately. He just went around touching everything. He touched the cow, he touched the bricks and everything. Because all he could do before was touch, but now he wanted to touch and see at the same time.
0: Donate today at hollows.org. Now, a far more hands-on story across the other side of the world in Australia.
6: Terrified. Absolutely terrified. When the government was saying that uh, there were going to be 850 police, riot squad police coming in, we just knew that it could be disastrous. And let's face it, a lot of us aren't as young as we used to be and not as nimble.
7: It could have been ugly. and The police didn't want to do it. They knew there was going to be fatalities.
0: I'm at the site of the Bentley blockade, visiting a bunch of neighbours who a few years ago, decided against all odds to take on the fossil fuel industry. We'll see how a hodgepodge group that included farmers to environmentalists, Indigenous leaders, small businesses and grandmothers tried to stop the gas fields from setting up shop around them. It is a remarkable story of brinkmanship that ended in an astounding way. An outcome that has echoed around the world. Let's go. Our story begins back in 2010 with a couple of grandmothers
5: who had Mondays off. Well, the nanas got together. We've started off as a spy network, if you like.
0: A handful of companies had started drilling holes looking for coal seam gas in the small town of Kierong in New South Wales on the east coast of Australia. Claire Toomey became concerned after seeing a documentary about it. I
5: saw gaslands on and that opened my eyes. And so we decided, we both had Mondays off, that we would check them out each week and just watch what was happening. They were building the evaporation ponds for the wastewater, the toxins, really, that came from fracking and exploration... So we watched that for a while, and that's when we were knitting, and that's where the idea of the nanas came about.
0: Claire and her friend set up a group called the Knitting Nanas. So, what had the Knitting Nanas stumbled upon?
8: A couple of flash Brisbane entrepreneurs, Steve Bazell and Nick Davies, got hold of the leases through their company, and they drilled 19 holes.
0: Ian Gayar, and his partner lived nearby.
8: One of them was in our valley, three kilometres upstream from my and Vicky's small patch of dirt on the floor of the valley.
0: Ian, too, saw the same documentary and became concerned. He'd been living in Kirong for the past 40 years, but there was something in his backstory that none of the companies would have known when they started drilling in his backyard. Ian had, well, an unconventional approach to authority. As a young man growing up in New Zealand, Ian had heard the French government was testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific.
8: With a friend, I organised a boat. We went across the Pacific, we went to Murray Atoll, had a run-in with the French Navy, got rammed. Uh, We escaped the clutches of the French courts and military in Tahiti and went on to Hawaii. Provocatively, the US government put a nuclear submarine, so we swam out to that on surfboards.
0: When the gas company started drilling in Ian's backyard, they probably didn't suspect what they were about to come up against. What Ian wanted to find out was what it was like to live with a gas field around you. Further northwest, gas fields have been running for years, so Ian went up to see the impact for himself.
8: The health effects in the Chinchilla gas fields on humans and animal populations are devastating. There are people with nosebleeds. There are people with headaches.
0: To be honest, when I started this story, I'd heard of fracking, but I never knew quite what it was. Basically, it involves injecting chemicals deep underground to break up the rock to release the gas caught in the seams. The problem?
8: You lose your water table.
0: The water near the surface drips through cracked rocks and disappears forever. And water is pretty important, especially on farms. Ian came back from Chinchilla and did what any self-respecting activist would do. He made a placard.
8: When I went to put up my own sign on my gate, I was nervous because I was one of the first ones, my own lock the gate sign. I said to myself, I'm making myself a target here, you know. What did
0: lock the gate mean?
8: Lock the gate means you put up a sign on your place, it's got a High Court precedent at the bottom of it, and you say, lock the gate to coal and gas companies. And it says, you can't come in here, you're not welcome here.
0: Even though these companies had a licence from the government to explore for gas beneath the land, they also needed access to the land. The easiest way to stop that is to simply lock the gate.
8: We got busy, started printing signs, putting out literature, and other groups started coming to us. We formed rallies in Lismore. Didn't ask any permission, just set up and did it.
0: A campaign was born. By showing video documentaries and holding meetings, Ian and the newly minted Kirong Gas Squad, alongside several other local action groups, went around the area... Educating people about the impact of having gas fields in their backyard.
7: I'm Peter Nielsen, um, farmer, prime producer all my life, born and bred in a farm. Um, Yeah, that's about the size of it.
6: Meg Nielsen, I work here on the farm now. I'm sort of uh, semi-retired. So when did you first hear about
0: coal seam gas in the Northern Rivers?
6: Well, initially there were sort of mentions that uh, there was this little industry that was going to come to the Northern Rivers, that was going to uh, give a, a nice little power station and provide the area with um, natural gas. I thought, wow, sounds great.
7: The company that was trying to promote it here uh, was trying to promote it as conventional.
0: So how did you feel when you found out that it wasn't what they told you it was?
7: I felt um, that's not you know, that, that, that's ridiculous. I think the politicians will stop this. That's what I thought. I thought they would go into bat for us because, you, know, you have faith in your politicians.
0: So that was Meg and Peter's plan at first, to trust the politicians. Yeah, we'll see how that pans out. At the same time, Ian's approach seemed equally futile. Signs and placards and rallies were not going to stop a mining company. If Ian was going to get them out of his valley, the Kirong Gas Squad needed to broaden its alliance. Enter Anikea.
5: How long have you lived in the Northern Rivers? My partner and I moved here in the beginning of 1985. Yeah, from Adelaide. And so why did you get involved? Went to see Gaslands, participated in a couple of rallies in Lismore and then thought, no, nah, this, is, this is a terrible, terrible industry. We have to throw everything we have at this to stop it from getting started. And so I thought, yep, I'm in.
0: Like Ian, Annie was also a veteran of social campaigning. She'd been part of the anti-nuclear movement in Adelaide. And
5: nowadays, she was an expert in... The dynamics of large human systems and how networks and complexity dynamics play out in those systems.
0: In other words, how to build a social movement... Before we go on, I'd just like to pause here so we can reflect on the sheer firepower that was starting to line up against these unfortunate gas companies. If you're looking for the perfect example of picking the wrong opponent, this might very well be it. Anyway, back
5: to Annie. We gathered together uh, at that time a bunch of other people, a few other people that we knew had a background in social movements and met at Ian's place.
0: One of the other people at that meeting was Simon Clough, a local councillor.
9: I mean, there was over 300 years of political activist experience in the room, and it showed.
5: I think there were about nine of us around the table and we got some sticky notes and said, OK, what's our vision, you know? What is our vision for what we want? I wrote them up and mapped out what we wanted to see, which was mass movement dynamics. Instead of
0: placards and signs or even relying on the local politicians,
5: this group was a tiny bit more ambitious. We wanted to see the whole population involved, broad, broad support from every political affiliation.
0: So they started building not just a campaign, but an alliance.
5: We put on a public meeting, showed a film, and asked everyone who was there, you can raise your hands, do you want your roads and lands gas-filled free? You can raise your hands for yes, for no, or for not sure. And much to our amazement, all the hands shot up bar one, in a room of 120 people. This wasn't just democracy as voting. This was democracy as action. I think this tendency of people to receive bad news in their Facebook feed and click on petitions is really debilitating. Yes, petitions can be valuable at times, but the real juice is in face-to-face groups. It's not only where the engines of campaigns are, it's where creativity is liberated, it's where collective intelligence is liberated, but it's also where well-being is liberated. And so they took the meeting literally into their streets. We said, look, not everyone's here at this meeting, so how about we give everyone a chance to have their say? And so that's what we did. We organised into survey teams, visiting every household... And that means visiting people from every political affiliation.
0: The strategy worked across political affiliations because the issue was about something they all shared. It was about the ground beneath them. Literally, the ground was their common ground.
8: The strategy then compiled all the results and the first successful gas-field-free community that was formed was Kierong the Channon. There's a very important point. We did not petition our politicians or our government, we told them, here and now, we will protect our community from gas fields. And this area is declared self-declared gas field free, which of course doesn't have any legal standing, but it has powerful community and energetic and moral standing.
5: By that time, the process was going viral in neighbouring Dunoon and places around here, they were picking it up and it was obvious it was going to be something big. But we were launching, in effect, a strategy.
9: The strategy was very simple. That was building relationship between everyone in the community.
5: But
0: wait, wasn't that exactly the mistake the Remain campaign made during Brexit, which made it impossible to come up with a message? What was it about this issue, do you think, that helped them connect and agree with each other?
9: The land. It's just one thing, the land.
0: The difference was the common ground that all these disparate people shared. When the message was about the land, they could see their own fate tied up in the fate of the Alliance.
9: We had tried initially to talk about fracking. You know, the, the horrors of fracking in terms of the destruction of water tables and the underground systems and so forth. And we came to the point where we realized that there were incredible limitations to that. And those limitations were around that it didn't express the whole problem. And the whole problem was the destruction of rural economy, the destruction of these extraordinarily beautiful rural environments, and you know, the loss of water. And when we started talking about that, it clicked.
5: Did you think you could win in those early days? I did. Because I believed that if we grew a social movement of sufficient strength, that we would win. If you build a social movement of sufficient power, uh, the power resides in the people. It doesn't reside in the government. Deciding to declare ourselves gas free is a spunky kind of thing to do. It's a feisty thing to do. It's, it's saying that we, the people of this place, have a right to self-determination.
0: Suddenly, in late 2012, the minister in charge of issuing gas licences, Brad Hazard, announced that he was coming to Lismore in three days' time, to the centre of the fight, to hold what he called a community consultation.
5: I think people had seen Mr Hazard in previous meetings and knew he was very masterful. Based on
0: previous experience, the group feared the meeting would be a whitewash.
5: Basically, people here decided that it wasn't going to go the way he had planned.
9: I was at the front, and it was deafening. You you have a thousand people chanting "No CSG" for twenty minutes before the meeting even starts, and. Essentially, what we decided was we were going to have our voice heard.
5: The community decided to get hold of the microphone, which they did, non-violently, through chanting, let him speak and pointing to Ian Gayo. They persisted with that for a very long time. The community was just saying, no, we're not going to play this by your rules. You're going to play this by our rules.
8: And we got hold of the microphone. It was given to me. I gave it immediately to Gilla, to Kevin Buddha, from the Gittable people, because that's protocol. That's the protocol of Indigenous Australia. You give it to your elders to speak. And he spoke, and then I spoke, and then we started handing it around our PhDs and experts. I mean, we had
9: a PhD in hydrology who said, so how many wells have you drilled that are going to monitor the impacts of this coal seam gas drilling? Absolute silence. We had a public servant who said, you know, well, of course, we all know that surface water is not related to groundwater. I mean, the whole thousand people on the hall just started braying with laughter. And then, of course, it was Marion Lloyd-Smith who had just come back from a UN meeting on unconventional gas. And I mean, she just put them in a corner and boxed their ears. And rather than walking out feeling disempowered and cowed, the community walked out of that meeting absolutely triumphant.
0: According to the normal story about protesting, this is usually where the story would end. Sure, If you talk to anyone who was there that night, they'll all tell you they left feeling utterly empowered. But that's not uncommon for mass action. Most people have been to a rally at some point in their lives, feeling that they'd made a difference. That's certainly how I felt after the march against the war in Iraq back in 2003. And then we were ignored. That's how these stories turn out, right? Well, this story isn't over. It's just warming up. Up until this point, the group had tried four times to stop the mining companies setting up exploration sites around the region using non-violent direct action. Each time they'd failed.
8: We got smashed by the riot squad at Glenoogie and Doubtful Creek. They marched in there in at Glenugi the first time and started throwing people around. Older people, they didn't recognise where they were. These gum-chewing, hyped-up young men and women. From Sydney.
0: Each time, the companies would call for help from the police and each time, the number of police would grow.
8: Bradley came in with an arm that had had a pick jammed into it. It was bloody. It was as bloody as anything you'll see in Australia.
0: Remember, all these actions were non-violent. As each battle was fought and lost, the campaigners forged stronger bonds of trust and respect between each other.
8: Our strength became determination. And our strength was organisation. Because by this time, we'd attracted a a very strong core group of people who knew how to organise.
0: In early 2013, one of the key organisers, Boudicca Ceres, was browsing the web and noticed that one of the gas companies, MetGasco, was planning to start drilling on a farm near Bentley.
5: They'd lost a lot of money with the delays from the previous two blockades.
0: Frustrated by the delays, the company had changed tactics.
5: The Bentley well was actually a well that they thought they could bring to commercial production quite quickly.
0: If that happened, then the company would at last have a viable foothold in the northern rivers. It was clear that the community would need to mount another blockade.
5: I think everybody entering the conflict at Bentley was very nervous about it because, you know, it's a difficult thing. Like, non-violent conflict is difficult. It's non-violent, but it's also conflict. Luckily, the campaign already had
0: a head start.
5: We had built a campaign iceberg. You know, we had engaged across the political spectrum, the whole community.
0: Up until now, the blockades had been on the side of the road. But this time, a local farmer offered the use of his land.
9: He was hardly a red ragging radical, I can tell you.
0: The whole community seemed to be swinging behind the campaign, even those who'd initially trusted their politicians.
7: Well, actually, the first time we went down, and cleared the site. There's a 20-odd people, 30-odd people. And I looked around, and not being involved <laughs> before, and I looked around and what are we going to do? 30 people. How are we going to stop them coming in the gate?
5: McGasco asked a fencing contractor, I think he was based around Byron, if he would do the job, put a fence around the site in preparation for the drilling. And he said, no. He said, you can keep your $12,000 on... I'm going down to join the people there, you know. The organisers
0: suddenly found they had eyes and ears all over town.
9: Our intelligence system was ridiculous. I mean, when the police were proposed to come in, when there was only 200 of them, we knew that they had ordered 250 breakfast rolls with egg and bacon and we knew where they were going to get them from and who was providing them and where they were going to eat them. It was just crazy degree of information we had.
0: Let's walk gently. And so several hundred campaigners set up camp, blocking the ability for any trucks to enter.
9: The mornings were really critical in the well it became pretty much known as the dawn service, where we would get together around about 5.30 in the morning and we were usually very fortunate in having some fantastic musicians. We'd generally have a fire and we would update people on what was going on in terms of the intelligence we had about where the mining was up to.
0: For months, this went on. The number of police in town started to increase, from dozens to scores to hundreds. But as the number of police increased, so did the number of protesters.
8: Eventually, a camp manager was employed and um, suddenly there was charging stations for all the two-way radios. And there was a coffee machine. Every protest camp needs a good coffee machine. (laughs) Cappuccinos there, you know?
0: As you can imagine, the company was not happy. And so the state government decided to bring in 850 police from all over the state to force the mining drills through.
8: As time built up, it became very apparent, you know, that the police numbers built up as time went by. So we were facing 850 to 1,000 police, dogs, horses riot squads and all that. And that was pretty scary.
0: Meg and Peter were dispatched to Sydney, the state capital. We
6: were trying to persuade the Premier not to allow the 850 riot police to be let loose on our community.
8: They said, get rid of the young people and the old people. We said, well, get rid of the young people. We don't want them exposed to trauma at this stage in their life. But we're not getting rid of the old people. We know why we're here. This is our job.
0: That night, the lookouts were placed on high alert in case the police decided to come early. A showdown looked inevitable. The phone rang at
7: about the quarter, to, quarter six to six in the, in the morning. morning. Yes, yeah. One of the TV... Uh, uh, was it One of the TV crews said, we want an interviewer under the tree of life out the back mm. of the Parliament House.
0: It was not the news that anyone had expected.
7: And he said they pulled the pin. Mm. And we didn't know. This was quarter to six in the morning. And... Uh, yeah that brought me unstuck
6: they'd won we we couldn't believe it we were laughing and crying it was just we had been so frightened it was just this extraordinary relief and i've never felt anything like it
8: i was up at gate a at the blockade site i was there as i was in the mornings with a loud hailer on my hip ready to give the briefing and we heard about it and i couldn't quite believe it, but it brought a big smile to my face and everyone else as well. And it was a feeling of sheer relief.
0: The blockade was over. The victory was comprehensive. Over the coming months and years, the government ended up buying back the licences they'd issued to the mining companies. Today, Northern Rivers remains gas field free. So is the fight over?
9: It's never over. Never, ever over.
0: It's an extraordinary tale, really. It's easy to mistake this sprawling, messy coalition of farmers, greenies, fireys and business owners as being an unwieldy coalition, the opposite of what was effective during the Brexit campaign. But in fact, the common ground that these people shared was narrowly defined, their land, literally their common ground. No one was trying to convince someone else that their way was the only way. Farmers and environmentalists have a very different way of loving their land, and in this space where people spent years getting to know each other better, they let those differences be. They could set aside their differences and agree on their commonality, defend the land that they all lived on together.
5: I think there's a misunderstanding and misuse of the word movement in recent times. I've often heard the word movement used for what seems to me a tight and focused campaign. To me... Movements are messy, they're turbulent, they're generative, they're creative. And, you know, if you're not tearing your hair out in a movement, you ain't got one, you know, all you've got is a campaign. Unluckily
0: for the mining companies, some of the key organisers of this campaign were veterans of social movements. They were diehard, highly skilled baby boomers, all living in a beautiful space. Many of them knew each other already, which made it easier for them to organise together. And their experience taught them that they couldn't do this alone. They needed to spread the leadership of this campaign across the whole community. Their alliance included 18 action groups. The coalition distributed leadership in ways that enabled lots of people to be part of the action. It was complex, but not chaotic. There were high degrees of trust built over years of working together that held the relationships together, even when it was tough. By the time of the Bentley blockade, they had built a huge movement, a real movement, a messy, creative movement that had the power to win.
9: And you need to have an overall strategy, and that strategy needs to start from the very beginning.
0: Talking of which, remember the meeting that kicked things off at Ian's house? The plan they wrote down to build a movement? It's
5: quite amazing. I look back on it after the end of the Bentley blockade. I I found the document and had a look at it. It's just one pager and we virtually achieved nearly all of it.
0: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Birth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network, and the Organising Cities project, funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. And thanks to Luke Vassella for permission to use his song, Gently Bentley. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.